0: One of the things we want to do this season on the Parlay in All Blue is to check in or reconcile the promises made by many of America's institutions during the 2020 racial reckoning. Corporate America, as a collective, and many individual companies spoke loudly about vowing to do better in its treatment of its black employees and the way that it engages with the black communities or black community that buys its products and services. To help us with this reconciliation, we have an insightful, authentic, truth-telling guest, John Graham Jr., who's the Vice President of Employment, Brand, Diversity and Culture with Shaker Recruitment and his wonderful book, Plantation Theory the black professional struggle between freedom and security. In his book, he takes us through his personal journey and gives us the accounts of many black professionals in corporate spaces and takes us through, we talk about the value of uh, integration and what does accountability look like at a corporate level when it comes to diversity. Our show is dependent on the time and the quality of our guest. And we thank John for both. John is also a graduate of America's oldest degree granting HBCU, Lincoln University. And he well represents the long list of luminaries from that prestigious institution. Look it up. I mean, Gil Scott Heron, Thurgood Marshall, Langston Hughes, the list goes on and on and on. He's falling right in. So thank you, John. And thank you, Lincoln. Now, if you're listening, I, Mark, want to thank you for your support of the Parlay in All Blue. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. It's important. Thank you again. Welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. John Graham, Brother King,
1: <laughs> welcome <laughs> yes, to the sir. Parlay in All Blue. How are you, sir? In the moment I'm well, brothers, good to see you. Good to be here. It is good to
0: see you and, and good to be here. And we are going to dig into your book, Plantation Theory. I really enjoyed it. And I was really at, in planning this season. I wanted to sort of reconcile over the course of the season a lot of 2020, right? And, you know, from a Show standpoint, we will get to, you know, policing and voting and many other things. But one of the things that happened at the kill after the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Armand Arbery and the shooting of Jacob Blake, which was I I don't even want to I don't want to I don't want to lose my way because that was just as brutal. (laughs) He didn't die, but it was it was certainly as 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 demonic, so to speak as any of those other acts. And so what, what happened during that time, a lot of corporations, a lot of big institutions, you know, said they were going to do better and be more sensitive. And we've sort of had this moment of racial, racial reckoning. And, and I'm just kind of sort of doing an audit or reconciliation of where we are now. And through Forbes, you know, having reviewed your book and then, Looking at some of your posts on social media, I said, man, and then then and then in reading the book Plantation Theory, I said, he will be perfect. So thank you for doing this because this is really helping us out in sort of our mission. So why did you write plantation theory?
1: Yeah, well, first and foremost, I think you summarized 2020 quite succinctly. And it's um it was a it was a catalyst for sure, but I had actually started writing the book pre-2020 and was just capturing thoughts. And after George Floyd was murdered, it was more so me going to the blogs and, and writing specifically on LinkedIn and getting some of my thoughts because there was a lot of people who didn't know what to do, you know, from a black professional perspective. And then even from, you know, white professionals who didn't know how to respond, how to be supportive, how to help in the moment. And so I think after about three, three or four articles, I was like, let me, let me stop because I, I want to complete the thought. And I think blogs as microcontent are cool for specific purposes, but what I wanted to address based on what I was seeing, experienced, and had experienced, I felt it was worthy of a long-form uh, approach. And so that reactivated the writing. And, and interestingly, I'd started with this concept called Switched several years before, and I was working on a documentary to capture the lived experiences of Black professionals in a way that could enable the viewer to really emotionally connect with these day-in, day-out lived experiences in professional settings. And the outline for Switched as a Documentary actually became the chapter outline for Plantation Theory, and then it evolved. And so it's you know, my background in history and, and African studies, really connecting the dots between the foundational points of why we experience what we do today and uh, making that clear as to the connection between our modern lived experience, uh, I think was vastly important.
0: So why the, the, the title Plantation Theory for the book?
1: Yeah, so Plantation Theory is a concept that If you look at the underpinnings of the construct that we are in as black Americans, what you find is that in a corporate structure, the model really hasn't changed much. And so what I what I proposed or what I posited was that everything from the hierarchical structure and the way work gets done to who the predominant labor force is up to a certain level uh, in the hierarchy is still very much modeled after plantation style, hierarchies and environments. Now, while the physical conditions are vastly different or improved, per se, psychologically, what you find is that black professionals still deal with a lot of the same struggles, even so much as to see those that look like us elevated to certain positions, but carrying out the same behaviors as uh, historical overseer functions. So, yeah, plantation theory again really just addresses uh, that time period post emancipation all the way through to modern day.
0: Yeah. So, I will tell you that um, as an adult, and when I would hear, you know, this is like a plantation or this is very much a thing, I think I, I connected to it, but I wasn't quite sure as to how, because when you think of a plantation, you certainly uh, and, that, and that certainly could make the leap between something being agricultural and and now sort of industrial, digital, what have you. But the idea, you know, unpaid labor and what have you. So I'd always get stuck. But there are a couple of um, either books or readings that that came across for me. One and a half that's never been told. And it's written by uh, Dr. Baptiste. that talks about how the American economy really built off of the, the plantation. It's things that we know, right? We know anecdotally or what have you, but he really sort of lays it out. And, and, you know, for anybody who hasn't read that, that will be certainly a good good start to it. But also, there's a book that we had reviewed here. Was, uh, the, the title was the, the Deepest South of All and talking about Natchez, mm. Mississippi, and, um, you know, sort of it's carrying on sort of the white elites and that you're still carrying on a lot of sort of Confederate rituals and, and reminiscing back to the Civil War, what have you. But in that book, there's a story about a genuine African prince who was captured from the area that we now know is in the area of Mali. And came and he ran the plantation. He was he was a very literate man. If you understand anything about West African sort of education and and Islamic education, he came and then he was a literate man. He spoke six languages and he did the books. He organized labor or what have you. And so the idea is of what you're saying of even when people rise, it, it's it's not a a big leap. To that end, you talk about. Black professionals navigating the corporate environment, and I am tickled right out the out the gate of your daughter asking a very pointed question to you and your wife about cold switching. I don't think she called it that, but she yeah. asked about cold switching. Can you tell tell us about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, look, my, my daughter is, uh, I swear she's been here before because the <laughs> questions she asked these, uh, at, at that time, she was seven, but she asked us sort of happenstance, Uh, you know, she asked her mother why, why she changes her voice when she calls the school or calls the doctor's office. And, uh, my wife was like, she, she couldn't, she had no words at the moment. She was like, talk to your father. <laughs> And so um she asked the question again and I and I thought for a second and I said well you know cuz you're you're trying to put it in a way that she can understand but you also don't want to pull punches right cuz you want to you want to make sure that she understands the context as well as the reality as best she can understand it and so I said to her uh, essentially uh, mommy changes her voice so that she doesn't scare white people and you know, To dig deeper into that, which I do a lot of times when I speak with Black professionals and ERGs or employee resource groups or affinity groups at Fortune 500 companies, when we talk about code switching and donning the mask or wearing the mask, as it were, code switching ultimately is a threat perception reduction tactic, tactic or technique, right? So reducing fear for the listener who's usually in the power majority or power dominant majority so as to de-otherize yourself and the closer in tone and stature and prosody or resonance you can get to a white sounding or power dominant sounding tone or or appearance or expression the less threatened they will feel now that doesn't necessarily always translate but in the, in the cases where it's over a phone conversation with a recruiter or someplace where you're not visibly seen, that voice can mean the difference between access or denial of access to opportunity. And so, yeah, it's something we're taught at early ages, um, something that is reinforced, especially when it comes to the job, uh, job market and going for the job. And then once you're in those places, again it's like putting on a uniform you know, and you do it almost you do it subcon- unconsciously to the point where you know even if you're approaching work, your voice will start to change before you even get into the office uh, you know so these are the the tactics we've had to use over time for survival
0: yeah and and I think that's something that all people can all black people can certainly identify with or, or relate to of what it takes to survive. And so often, especially in 2020, this sort of talk, you know, became mainstream about, you know, the interactions mm-hmm. with law enforcement. But what cold switching it <laughs> brings is that it's actually ongoing. It is ongoing in dealing in sort of white dominated spaces. Is it healthy for us? To do that
1: not at all, no no it's it's uh you know the the dual reality right uh, or the duality that's experienced I mean it forces you to leverage mental resources and capacity in addition to your job function, so being mindful and constantly on on alert for who's in the room, if you're presenting uh, how you're coming off and you know second guessing yourself or. Just constantly being on can drain you. It is draining mentally, uh, physically, and uh, that suppression of cultural identity expression actually leads to physical ailments, which has been studied. So, no, it is not healthy, which is why, you know, it begs the question are, you know, why are we flocking to these environments rather than creating more spaces that are conducive for us to be who we are?
0: Yeah, so we had earlier, um, a few episodes back, we had Linda Villarosa, who has written more about healthcare and Black folks in healthcare in America than, than just about anyone. She cited in her work Dr. Geronimo's work on, on the term weathering and how sort of mm. the Black body is weathered by sort of being in constant fight or flight mode when you're dealing with whether it's law enforcement or in the banks or in corporate or what have you, that it is a it wears physically on the body over time. But it also has a an impact on mental health as well, because you're constantly on. I do want to get to yeah. to what you, you open the door to about, you know, why are we constantly looking to be affirmed or looking to make it in these environments? But I want to want to ask a little bit more about the environment especially for people who don't understand or may not understand what it's like for a black person to be in these environments you you mentioned and I and I thought it was really good in your book you made a parallel between the black codes and people gathering so, sort of after reconstruction and just you know having two or three people and this is in a lot of cases a literally written in against the law it's illegal for black people to gather like that. How does that play out in right. uh, corporate environments?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, and I experienced it at a, at a conference recently is two weeks ago that essentially the black code was, and it was a vagrancy law, but they uh, essentially stated that any blacks gathered two or more in public space uh, would be considered vagrant. Essentially, you don't have a job, therefore you're loitering, therefore breaking the law. And it was used to accelerate incarceration of formerly enslaved folks who were recently emancipated so as to continue the labor force of free to cheap or, or no uh, no cost labor. And so that has an epigenetic resonance, meaning that kind of trauma or that kind of behavioral adjustment or modification over time is passed down genetically. And so culturally, I'm sure that we weren't told explicitly not to gather two or more. But seemingly, whenever we gather two or more in spaces, we look around and we say, you know, we're not supposed to be together. Right? Yeah, you know, or, or there's this perception that people are looking or even sometimes realize somebody will come up who doesn't look like us. And jump in the conversation or ask what's going on or, you know, things of that nature. And so there's this this inherent response or consciousness, I'll say, of being in groups with each other in predominantly white spaces for how, how it may be perceived or what somebody may think we're up to.
0: Yeah. You know, you you mentioned that I am someone who has spent time significant amount of time. I don't know if significant. Significant is relevant, but I, I i visit plantations. I visit ports of entry of where enslaved people were, were brought. And there was a, a plantation. It's actually Boone's Hall Plantation in South Carolina, just outside of Charleston. And One of the things that was notable is that you had the, in visiting there, you had the big house and then you had the space and then there was uh, this sort of slave quarters where people slept. So when people asked sort of where did the slaves live, the slaves lived all over the plantation. They were bound to it. So that's one thing. They slept in these, you know, raggedy structures or what have you. But in between there, there was the church, which was a, a gathering place, and The guide pointed out how the view between the big house and the church was like going down and it was unobstructed by trees, flowers, plants or anything. So this idea of being watched is built into the physical structure sometime. And I'm often struck by when I visit corporations or just see different things that that. In a lot of the ERGs, black ERGs, there's an executive who is typically white. And I always feel like, man, it's, it's, this is a black space, but it's, it's like being watched even then.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting you say that, because even if you look at how offices are designed, where do executives typically sit in an office if they're not on a floor to themselves? But if they are amongst people who are varying uh, seniority levels, the executives are usually placed on the perimeter and those who are lower in in level are in the middle. So it's almost like a bullpen. Right. 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 You can see, and again, not by accident, even, uh, you know, it's just the, the parallels are uh, and the way that it's been incorporated almost uh, to the point where you don't even question that it's normalized. It's still baked very much so into the structure.
0: Yeah. You know, you, 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 you eloquently, I think, or certainly you brought it very much in a way that I I hadn't thought about of of that sort of duality in living in. And Du Bois talks about, you know, sort of that duality double consciousness, double consciousness, calling in black, calling in Mm -hmm. black. You talk about that in your book. What is calling in black in the in the way that you framed it?
1: Yeah. So when you think about the traumatic experience of watching uh, an Ahmaud Arbory video before it really catches headlines and waves, or if you're seeing Jacob Blake being shot seven times at close range in the back, or you're witnessing for nine minutes George Floyd's life being taken out. Those have a psychological and emotional impact on the viewer, right? If you were empathetic to the human condition, to see that and most of us roll over in the morning and we scroll and we catch up on headlines and so forth. So this could be, for a lot of folks, the first thing you see in the morning or the last thing you saw before you went to bed. Now, imagine that happens on a Tuesday and you have to go to work. Yeah. And you have just experienced this traumatic visual of life being taken brutally. And you walk into an environment pre-pandemic, but in, you know, post-pandemic scenarios, you're on screen with people who have no clue. It's not on their radar yet. It hasn't made national headlines per se. And they're conducting business as usual, uh, talking about how the weekend went, or did you see the game, or all of these things that are so disconnected from that very real and visceral tragedy you just experienced. And so that requirement to suppress those feelings in the midst of performing at levels of excellence, even in the midst of your own pain, I've suggested that is too far gone and a a burden that we should not carry. And so in honor and respect to our own mental health and our emotional stability to call in or call out of work. And so when these traumatic racial injustice events occur, and we are witness to those, I suggest that you don't go into work yeah. Right. And take that day off. And I've actually pushed for companies and consulted companies to consider adding those kinds of codes for absence uh, specific to these events because they happen so frequently. Do do those companies get it? Oh, they understand it. The execution of it's a bit <laughs> a bit interesting. No, no. <laughs> hey,
0: listen, well, certainly I want to applaud yeah. you for, for bringing it up. I will talk about just a, just briefly. An experience for me of one of many, but there was a pool party. I call it the McKinney, Texas sort of pool party incident, and where the black girl was, cops came in and they were were drawing guns, and these were all teenagers and preteens and what have you. And it was this very disturbing scene for me. It was very disturbing and uh because the girl who was grabbed by her hair by a grown man a 14 or 15 year old girl at that time slammed to the ground and these kids having guns drawn on them so i remember waking up to that on a sunday morning and, I, and by waking up my text messages were overflowing my social media people DM. And, and and so I saw this, and I carried that into work, and I carried that into actually a high level meeting of president. And I'm and I'm walking in and thinking that Experience. wow, we, you know, how are we going to have this meeting that and nobody else there even thought about it? It it bothered the shit out of me the entire mm-hmm. day because one, it was very heavy because I could relate to the parents, I could relate to the children. And it was awful, but it was just business as usual. That was 2014, 2015. I can't remember the year, but it's it's been a while. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, that these things don't go away for black people. And they haven't stopped since George Floyd, right? They haven't stopped at all. I mean, like you said, months later, Jacob Blake it, the, the the same thing there on camera. So right. you work or, or do work in DEI? Is DEI an industry? Is it a, is it a concept? Is it what What is DEI?
1: Yes, <laughs> to all of the above. <laughs> it, it has become an industry. Um, yeah. I mean, to the tune of over uh, t- uh, ten billion dollars a year industry, and conceptually, right. It, it, it's one of those anomalies, and I say it's DEI as an anomaly because if you look at history, when you think about the most privileged, status or powerful class in any civilization in history, those people have never willingly relinquished that power, privilege, or status, right, unless it, unless it was taken by force, so there is no historical reference for a privileged, powerful, a status class giving up those things willingly. Right? Let's start there. So DEI unto itself is asking the most privileged, powerful, and status people in corporate environments to seed some of that so that you can have an equitable or inclusive environment. But the construct wasn't designed for that in, in mind. Right? It was not designed with humanity in mind. Let's Let's be very clear the colonial construct was specific and very um, calculated and cold, a disconnect from humanity was required in order to achieve the ends financially that they were seeking to achieve, right? The highest productivity and profitability output from or outcomes from low cost to no cost labor overhead. That is still the model today. So here we are in DEI trying to get people who are educated from highly pedigreed schools and institutions and even grew up in environments that reinforce this notion to now add humanity into this construct of, you know, corporate capitalism or global capitalism. And so it's it's anomalous, right? It's it's having to work backwards from people's disconnect from the human impact of their decisions and now starting to interrupt. The automaticity of bias and prejudice or racism in certain cases, gender, genderism and and all of the other isms in a very slow and incremental way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So just to I want to ask a little bit more about that. I want to throw into to to that whole idea of so. We get to we tell a story of you know rugged individualism and we talk about the systems and how it's so you know perfect in terms of capitalism. And if we look to just throw out capitalism for a minute, just talk about trade. Black people, Indian people, Irish people, people all over the world have have traded and there's always been merchants. So that's that, that's not that's not a new thing. But that, like you said, that Exploitation of, of labor to it first being built with free, zero paying labor, and then you know, getting the lowest amount for the labor is, is still kind of a big deal. The disparities between CEO pay and the pay of the average worker is growing, growing, growing. It's 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 growing since the, the 1970s to the point of it's unprecedented. But also along right. with that is and this will be another time for my listeners, a different show, the environment. It's also been the the resources. So a lot of times when I hear of companies say they're going to, you know, they care about the environment, I believe, you know, in their hearts, they care about it. But <laughs> it's not going to it's not going to stop sort of. We can't make one of these. Right. I'm holding up my phone with
1: that mm-hmm.
0: extreme exploitation of the resources. In the the Congo, for instance, the cobalt, everything in the phone is 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 from a exploited land and and exploited labor, and and they're not even getting tax taxable mm-hmm. benefits from it from the corporations. You mentioned in the in the book that one of the things that keeps DEI from being effective is accountability. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think we first have to level set or come to a common understanding of accountability just from a linguistic standpoint. And when, when I talk about accountability amongst Black professionals and ERGs versus white professionals and executives, what you notice is that that word has different meanings across racial, re- different racial realities. So when we think of accountability from a historically oppressed lens, accountability usually has a negative or consequential connotation to it, right? There is a repercussion, ownership, admission, and then uh, seeking uh, repair or reparation. That is specific to our experience because that's what we dealt with and endured, especially even if it wasn't our uh, fault per se power-dominant cultures, that word usually lends itself to negotiation, right? And when you dig into the underpinnings of these codes of politeness that, were, that are baked into sort of the British nobility structure and European nobility and this concept that you never um, openly infringe upon or sully the good name or reputation of somebody else, right? And so, you speak in a more coded more psychological or implied manner so as not to be overt, direct, vulnerable, or forthright. And so that then lends itself to this notion of negotiation. So we know something bad happened, Mark. You don't have to say it out loud. Let's, let's figure out how we get past this. right? Let's, mm-hmm. What is it going to take for us to move on? Right? And you see this happen all the time with you know, executives who are ousted in scandal, but by no means do they admit guilt. In fact, it's contractually right secure that they do not have to admit to wrongdoing and they Mm -hmm. still get the parachute on the way out. Right. Mm -hmm. But that again is baked into a system of power and language of power, which law actually supports. And so accountability then becomes this difference of uh, enforcement and acknowledgement of a clear and present wrongdoing, but how it gets repaired differs between your, your, your status within an organization. So when I ask executives, you know, what does accountability look like? White executives specifically, it usually comes down to like measurement, right? Or metrics. Well, you can't, you can't change what you don't measure or what, 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 measure, what gets measured gets done and things like that, right? But, but okay, that's just a measurement. We can tell you quantitatively what happened, when it happened, where it happened. But, you know, the why it happened is fuzzy. And then even if you really deduce through your insights and data collection, why it happened, you are still then questioned on what are you going to do about it? And that's where we run into the brick wall in DEI. We have no shortage of data. We've got more data than any 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 period of of history. Mm -hmm. But that question of what are you going to do about it in terms of very real real terms, if I have a microaggressive manager who is consistently demeaning in meetings, You know openly dismissive denying me access to projects or high visibility or high profile projects which could elevate my career and i report that to hr through employee relations processes what is the process number one is it clear and then number two what is the repercussion for this person's behaviors well nine times out of ten it's well we had a conversation with them or we've recommended sensitivity training or you know, some sort of education because they didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And then you on the receiving end are left unwhole, Right. And so accountability to this day has not achieved a repercussive or reparative, restorative outcome. It's still very much in the data driven or compliance based uh, sense of the word. Yeah.
0: So here's what I here's what I would want to ask as a sort of follow up. Yeah. What what gets measured is what gets done. So if we said that, you know, I'm making up a corporation and let's say it's we sell toothpicks and I wanted to penetrate the southeast and United States and grow sales by 15 percent. If I had 11 percent and there was no sort of macroeconomic e- thing, like some tornado hit the, that part of it and we just couldn't do it, I'd either be gone or close to gone. Certainly the next time if I, did, if I did 11% again, I'd be gone.
1: That's right.
0: Are there those types of consequences for not meeting diversity goals?
1: No. No, and I think the, the scenario you laid out is very specific to revenue generation. DEI is a cost. To any company, right? It is it is not a revenue generator. Regardless of what business cases will tell you, and 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 you know, the reports by McKenzie that diverse and inclusive leadership teams or companies with those diverse and inclusive leadership teams outperform their competitors by you know 30%, and so forth. What they don't tell you is that was correlative, not causal, right? So They just happened to have more to first. It wasn't they specifically did. And that was the outcome intended. So, no, if it doesn't generate revenue, then you are a cost to the business, in which case they will evaluate very clearly, uh, very differently, the consequences for that.
0: Well, so let me ask you this, because I can go into any of the big box retailers and depending on, you know, what part of the country I'm in, like if I am in on the south side of Chicago or I'm here in Atlanta or what have you, I can find an aisle with some black hair care products. So what I'm saying is, is they they have done enough data and they are accountable. They can find me to buy their stuff. Why can't they find me to promote and share and sort of the profit? And, and 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 let's be clear about this: is that we'll get into this in just a second because you you open the door. Why keep getting into it? why do we why do we why are we even? talking about this? Why are we worried about these environments and not creating our own? It's very valid question. It is the question. But I will also counter with if my dollars are good, then my talent and what have you should be rewarded. If I'm 60% of the labor in the NFL, I can't even coach or general manager or anything. So companies are quite able to know my purchasing habits.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. and
0: treat me and find me as a consumer but not as a partner and 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 let's take it to the other end um have you seen corporations or do a lot in terms of increasing their spend with black owned businesses
1: sure absolutely look i mean in a post george floyd world, you've seen companies make significant contributions donations and allocations to Black organizations, increase supplier diversity programs and uh, employ Black vendors, make contributions to Black HBCUs, elevated Black talent into executive positions, board positions in some cases. But even with all of that, a question that I ask and that I lead with with black uh, professionals is with that as a backdrop and all of these activities and initiatives done, have you seen a material improvement to your daily lived experiences within these companies? The answer 9.999 times out of 10 is no. So those activities, while great on paper and can help some individuals, is not a collective measure, right? It does not benefit a entire group. And especially when that becomes a PR play, right, to elevate the, the uh, image and the perception of the brand in consumer markets, well, then it becomes a perverse incentive, right? I'm going to do these things so that I can extract more dollars, or I'm going to do these things so that I can extract more talent, but you're not paying at equal levels. And one one of the expressions of this that I do in a, in a talk is I'll have uh, some of the, the diversity statements from corporate websites, very well-known companies. I'll put the diversity statement up first, and it usually waxes poetic, poetic about the commitment to diversity and creating inclusive environments, so forth, so forth. And then I'll put up the leadership team for that organization. And the statement versus the imagery of the leadership team are, it's, it's, a, it's a Grand Canyon-esque gap <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> between reality and the statements. And so, yeah, no, it's it, as a consumer, there is a financial benefit. And that financial benefit typically improves the position of those who are consolidated in power more so yeah. than it does the collective of the community they're extracting dollars from.
0: Yeah. And I I would even say that a lot of those commitments, even on the supplier end, are very much targeted on the consumer side of things. And and whereas we're actually particularly hair care or, you know, sort of fashion and bringing things that we're already doing and actually just bringing them into the sort of corporate space instead of maintaining sort of control and ownership of them is just really creating another channel. I haven't seen any significant increase in, in black suppliers specifically, because so for one, the word diversity means so much that it's almost meaningless. Right. And our show is really about black folks and black issues. Very little in terms of when you talk about, black engineering firms, black law firms, black technical firms, those things that are B2B, business to business, mm-hmm. that are not visible. Even when even when there is sort of um, increase in sort of business partnerships, it's on the consumer and visible facing side where it feels more performative than
1: actually transformative. Well, to that point, if I may, we've seen an increase of, you know, a thousand percent or thousandfold thousand fold increase in representation in consumer good commercials or movies or right and and you would think that change is happening <laughs> right but one of the first instances i saw in early 2020 was in the uh, bet awards commercial it was after george floyd uh, was killed and it was a i think it was like a a, a pepsi or a coke commercial i, I can't I, I think it was pepsi and there was i mean it was all black everything Everywhere yeah. you looked in the commercial yeah. and then holding up a can of what arguably is uh, one of the highest killers of our in our community around diabetes and, and, and poor health. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, even with an increase in rep- representation to sell you a product that's killing you. Right. Isn't beneficial to us. So therefore, representation does not equate to inclusion, nor does it equate to equity you know, or, or uh, justice. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's 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 I I couldn't agree more. And thank you for 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 adding that. Who is Claude Anderson?
1: Dr. Claude Anderson, brilliant scholar, political education background, uh, ran campaigns for many political candidates in Florida. But um, a uh, I want to say North Carolina native, but he has written a series of books that uh, that I suggest should be a part of every black households library a significant impact on me in the way that he connects the dots between history and the modern experience. But he questions and has so many questions that we don't even think to ask. In fact, one of the first books I read by him was the black history reader, 101 questions you never thought to ask, but also a book called black labor, white wealth, power, nomics, and then dirty little secrets one and two. And so these, the concepts that he's putting forth, are absolutely brilliant and I think fundamental to our advancement as a people in this in this country, especially when we talk about self-sufficiency and, and what his uh five-point platform for black self-sufficiency is.
0: Would me becoming CEO of pick you know fortune major, fortune 10, fortune five company, mm-hmm. would that increase or help with black self-sufficiency? No. Not even close. Would a hundred of me's help in black self-sufficiency?
1: It would not. It would not.
0: And it's not no. me, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. A right? hundred okay. of
1: you's would be, yeah, would be, right. would be a phenomenal achievement. Me, However, I, would,
0: I would be balling me personally. I mean, you'd be killing the game. I'd be killing the game. Right. But would it help us?
1: No, no. And and I think that's a, a, a very valuable point to, to be made that the success of one does not matriculate to a communal benefit. And that is really where we have seen, you know, if you go back to integration and, and you know, 1965 and 66, what you saw was sort of the, uh, what I say, like the, the, the store doors open at uh, black Friday back when we had to go shop in person and everybody's waiting to get in and go and rough bum rush the store. The floodgates opened, which led people right out of black communities into access in white, uh, predominantly white environments. And so that communal obligation and connectivity and resourcefulness and reliance upon each other disappeared almost overnight. Right. Because now we had access. And so when they let a few through, knowing that it would break up community, well, now you can give economic access or economic empowerment to a few rather than the many and actually make them competitive. So, when I hear people say, Well, we need more black businesses and we need more economic development, da 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 da. Well, none of that works unless you have a communal foundation first, right? Obligations, beliefs, ideals, worldviews, and accountability measures to each other that would then obligate us to actually spend our money together first. Then we could build economic, sustainable uh, and, and vertically integrated businesses to support our needs. Uh, and then there's a whole host of things we could do with economics and community as a base.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the the things that I, I think also is that there's some sort of perception of, of progress when, you know, people are elevated in in those spaces and corporate spaces and white Traditionally white institutional spaces, there's this elevation and that's progress. And as an active Jackson State alumni, and and I, my son is in school there, what have you, you know, with all of the many wonderful things that are happening at the school, and and it's, you know, Deion Sanders is being there and bringing the spotlight or what have you. The question always comes up of, you know, will he get a Power five job, or you know, will he get a job at a, a bigger school or a historically white college, or in, the, in in those things? And and I keep asking myself the question: Is why do we equate that as if it were progress? And why do we want him to do that? Now, let me say this: Whatever he comes up with is is his business. It, don't get me wrong sure. about that. They, you know, that's an individual choice, but it is somehow ingrained that him getting a job at a historically him getting becoming the head coach of a historically white colleges football team is somehow progress. If we threw away right there's nothing better than what's happening now culturally. And again for him individually I don't count anybody's pockets so I you know I can't say if he needs the money, it doesn't need the money or what have you. But I don't see that as progress compared to what's happening, not just at Jackson State, but for the light that he's shining on all HBCUs.
1: Absolutely, no, I, I think you're spot on. In in that we still believe white ice is colder, right? We we still seek out validation from white institutions as uh, a point of success. Uh, look. We just moved from uh, one of the most affluent areas in Southern California outside of L.A. On paper, we made it. Right. But we were the only ones that looked like us in our neighborhood to the point where my wife didn't feel safe or comfortable walking in the neighborhood just to go exercise. Right. And so if that is the, the price of success to feel isolated, to be otherized in your own neighborhood or even profiled in your own driveway, Then really, what are we striving for? And again, it comes back to this void that's been artificially implanted psychologically, emotionally, and even genetically over time that we that the measure of the standard of success is always going to be white. Yeah. What I say is that's an impossible task, right? It's a it, it doesn't validate you any any more than. Than you would think because to get to those heights or to those positions as the the chief executive officer of said corporation or the head coach of a historically white institution, they've allowed you to be there because they deemed you as safe. You're not going to come up and mess up the status quo or mess up the money, right? Because they vetted you and they've ensured that you will not mess up the money.
0: Yeah, listen, I, I think uh we talk about the, and, and I am guilty of this, we talk about with the, the period of, of in the mid 60s and early 70s when integration begins to happen. And let me say that the dehumanizing inability to not access public spaces or to get capital or a bank or to have a quality education, I am so grateful for the people that provided that opportunity. But I think what has happened is that somebody realizing? well, wait, wait a minute, this is not a bad thing. We can extract the dollars from the community and the best and the brightest the talent will take that as well, right? So, so when you see when you see sort of, um, the, to bring it back to what we're talking about, whether it's a head coach or whether you're talking about a brilliant lawyer or somebody or, or a scientist, what have you, to have that scientist come, you know, this computer engineer or this brilliant lawyer or whoever he or she is, and they're black and then working in my corporation, that's a win for me. Sure. And it's certainly good for any individual that does that, but it doesn't, Change the the whole for for black folks. That's right. Lincoln
1: University. Yes, sir. Tell me about Lincoln University. Yeah, the oldest degree-granting HBCU in the country, uh, founded in 1854 in uh, what's uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania, Lincoln University, PA now. But um, yeah, a lot of history for sure, especially as you think about. Black folks being educated even pre-emancipation. And so, um, you know, as the uh, the Ashman Institute, uh, as it was formerly called pre-emancipation, educated the brightest minds from around the country. But, you know, you have graduates like Kwame Nkrumah, you know, Langston Hughes, Gil Scott Heron, plenty to name. So there's there's certainly hallowed grounds there. And you, John uh, Graham, you know, uh, my, myself, myself, my, my parents met at <laughs> Lincoln University. I have uncles, I, aunts, cousins who went to, I was, I'm a legacy, 100%. So here's,
0: here's what I will say is at that, you know, in our interactions, which has only been a couple, and in my sort of consulting practice, I am working with a young Black professional from Lincoln, and I am via you and via uh, this this young man. He's younger than I am. He's a man for sure. sure. I'm very impressed at the sort of groundedness and blackness that all HBCUs produce and the confidence Absolutely. and the insightfulness or what have you. Uh, but Lincoln is uniquely also, you mentioned Kwame and you, you Lincoln is also unique in terms of having cultivated a lot of the original leaders of countries in Nigeria and Ghana, and I want to say others during African independence. And so True. saying all of that to say, and this is a personal question for, for you, with you being yeah. a student of Dr. Claude Anderson, with you being a graduate and being, you know, sort of cultivated in that Lincoln University mindset and sort of environment what is it like psychologically for you? Because you are a person who is grounded in in, in blackness. What is working in court like for you?
1: Well, I think, you know, that um, any graduate of an HBCU comes out with a, a sense of pride and belief in themselves that's been instilled and reinforced on a daily basis for a period of four or five years. I state in the book that, you know, for the first time for for many who attend, it's the first time that your excellence is expected and that your failures aren't a reflection on your entire race, right? So you get to be this individual who can experience meritocracy potentially, right? But then knowing that you have this history, I mean, I I remember hearing, because Thurgood Marshall is also a graduate of Lincoln University undergrad before he went to Howard and you hear the stories of, you know, him running the yard and pledging cue and all the things that, you know, that go down. And you're like, wow, this massive icon in our, in our culture, uh, found himself in these, on these very, you know, plots and in these very rural lands that, that the school resides in. And so that connection to, to greatness and excellence from our past is very present when you go into corporate spaces, you hold your head a bit higher because you've been grounded in who you are pre-introduction of transatlantic slavery. If you you know have mandatory courses in the African-American, African-American experience or African experience. For me, I majored in African studies. So I spent an extensive amount of time studying our contributions to the world and civilizations pre-transatlantic slave trade. So I'm walking in these white spaces with a very strong sense of who I am, who my people are, and what not only we're capable of, but what we've done to advance this world. And that hits different. You know, you can tell when, when you meet another HBCU grad in a corporate environment, you know, like you don't even have to speak on it. You can just tell by the demeanor, the, the stature, the presence, the posture, right? It's right. it's an energy that we give off because we, again, are very firm and clear in who we are. Now corporate will try and change that for you real quick. But there's the resilience. And especially if you've gone through a process uh, in a fraternal experience, then, you know, this is nothing new. Right. <laughs> this, right. This is what you deal with. Yeah.
0: Having said that, you know, because and this is just this I'm going to come back to plantation theory. But you, you mentioned yeah. you know, all of those things with that happens at an at an HBCU. Was there ever a professor that took a test for you?
1: It took a test for me? No. Right. No, no,
0: did did no, anyone? No. Did it? Did anyone no. like do your homework? Probably I mean, you like an assignment? Write a report for you? It, no. Okay. So here's why I'm L's. asking. I, I want people to, you know, when people say that HBCUs coddle you, no, there's no, no.
1: coddle. It's, they, it's, it's,
0: it's not a project that anyone did for me other than myself. There's no test that I took, and then I got an HBCU bump. I think one thing that, and it bothers the hell out of me, which is why I'm bringing this up, Uh, and I didn't plan to bring this up, but now that we're here, (laughs) I'm here here. for a minute, is there's this perception of, and I've heard this, of HBCUs coddle you or don't prepare you for the world or what have you, this, that, and the other. Nothing Mm. can be further than from the truth, and I think what it is I've thought about this a lot, is that for black people, especially in all of the stuff that we're talking about of watching your parents have to go to the bank and then cold switch or, you know, go to the hospital uh, and, you know, be dressed a certain way just to go to the doctor and, and the changing behaviors to not lose your life in law enforcement experience. We are so accustomed to and conditioned to. Having to other ourselves to play down in so many spaces that what's mistaken is, is that we are we are not often the benefactors of institutional love. And so what happens at Lincoln and at Howard and at Hampton and at FAMU and at Talladega and at Rust and I could go on and on. Let me Alabama and M for my mother and my, my father and my sister. I don't want to get hemmed up. Is that we get institutional love and and somehow even black folks think it's odd to get that and then it's mistaken for coddling and not mm. as just love mm. is. Can be raised. You can be molded via love. It doesn't always have to be this harsh sort of environment. It is okay to receive love, my brothers and sisters, and now the doors of the church are open. We're gonna get back to plantation theory, but hey, let, let me let me let me get back to this. Anyway, having said that, in your opening, the the forward to the book is from Dr. Joy DeGruy. Yes. First off, that's a, a, uh, that, that's outstanding, I, amen, to, to have her do that for you. Um, what is, yeah. Why did you want her to write the forward, and what is her work about, and how does it inform sort of what you're trying to accomplish with plantation theory?
1: Yeah, I'm extremely fortunate to have uh, had her uh, write the, the forward for me, but even more fortunate to be able to call her a friend and a mentor whose work is so groundbreaking and necessary. For those that don't know, Dr. Joy DeGruy is the author of a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, which is, you know, a clinical as well as historical perspective on the downstream effects of 400 years of chattel slavery. Mm hmm. The work that she does, I think, is so important because it can and and why I wanted to have her write the forward was when we think about what we're dealing with today in in corporate America as black professionals, it is very interconnected to the programming and the uh, environmental traumas that we've dealt with for centuries uh, that we still engage in today, but now not by force, per se but more so uh, willingly subjecting ourselves for this notion of socioeconomic stability or increase and, uh, and validation and success. So,
0: you know, as a, it's, it, as I think through her work and, and she's brilliant, I'm glad, I'm grateful for people like her. I think it underscores even what I was saying then. I, never, I hadn't thought about this until now is that that sort of 400 years because it so we go from the period of bondage of where you're having to downplay. And then you go into this intense period of Jim Crow and sort of the black codes of where literally. So, I, and I don't like bringing up these names because it's, 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 it's trauma in and of itself, but you take an Emmett Till of just literally being human, just existing could get you lynched. and So people are accustomed to, Being treated harshly and not being loved in these spaces. And then you opened with code switching and sort of back to each other. Right. Is that we we definitely need to be if there's anything that I could say that I got from from your book. And I would urge everybody to get the book Plantation Theory is that we could certainly love on each other uh, a little more and support each other and be courageous enough to, to to tell our stories? How's your book been received by two groups: by Black professionals and then from white corporate leaders?
1: Well, the first group I will say has been the reason for success. Um, mm-hmm. I have done no paid marketing for this book at all, and um, through my speaking engagements and fireside chats and Black ERGs to um, you know bulk book orders for entire teams. I mean, this book is sold well beyond any idea of success that I would have ever envisioned. And so, what I hear consistently is that this book has spoken their life in ways that they never felt safe enough to speak out. Um, it's given voice to you know many people who felt voiceless in these environments. But then it has also been a, uh, a critical read for uh, the children, right? Th- those in high school matriculating to college and college matriculating into corporate, for them to be able to put this in front of them and give them sort of a guide as to what they're going to face should they choose to go this route. And if you do, then here's what to look out for. And here's another way that you can re- uh, position your relationship with these environments. From a white professional perspective, it's given a lot of insight and perspective into experiences that they have no clue uh, go on. Right. And so as not to give, you know, our sauce away, as it were, but more so to inform them who are being tapped to lead organizations on how to do so through a more humane lens to understand the history of the institutions and the construct of the structures of these institutions so that they can be aware of not replicating that in their uh, stewardship of these uh, these companies. And then it leads to a space of being able to ask questions that they've never been able to ask comfortably because I've given them more of an educational foundation than they've had before in these matters. So now it can be, you know, what, what, I, what I suggest is they've experienced education rather than implication. And so now they are you know, able to grow in a... Uh, you know, I create sort of a consequence-free environment for them to really understand. And so it's been tremendous. I mean, the book has been made mandatory reading by executive leadership teams. My goal is to get this into curriculum at HBCUs because we're to your earlier points where I think our alma maters and HBCUs alike could do better to prepare students coming out of these environments of love and richness and historical confidence is to be more aware of the psychological engagements, and interactions that you will deal with when in predominantly white environments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good point. I will tell you that I had some success in corporate environments. And Mm -hmm. when I go back to whether it be homecoming or to my home church or to any other place, and I would look at, people or interact with people that I know were sharper or are sharper than I am, that are willing to put in whatever amount of work or high character people that have not done as as well. The one thing that I that, and I didn't have terminology for this at this point, but now it, it it's the weathering, the psychological weathering. And the microaggressions, uh, it is not most of those people have not experienced someone using a slur in a corporate environment. Most people have not had a noose hung in their cubicles or what have you. But it is that constant sort of uh, you mentioned, I have to be flawless to get a promotion or this questioning of sort of. Your appearance, or you, the the way you speak, or what have you, just really wears down. And re, on the reverse side of it is we will not move forward. Whether it's because, listen, we even 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 if we and we should do more entrepreneurism, but we need capital to do that. The one thing that is missing, I think, from these conversations is is that racism is an actual thing, and it is an actual thing, and 100% of the people in the United States are affected by it. Now, if you're white and you see yourself today and you are going to, and you've been in 10 meetings today, oh, I had a busy day, I had 10 meetings, can you believe it? And let's say there were 100 people in those meetings and 95 of them were, were white, You've experienced racism. It's just in a way that it's not painful to you, but you're experiencing it because there's been a separation, meaning that you were on the other side. You didn't experience the suffering of it, right? Mm -hmm. You got to ask yourself, why was I in the meeting with 100 100 people today and there were 95 that looked like me? Because the other people that are locked out, it's not because they're not smart. It's not because they're not willing to work hard or what have you. I just want people to understand that Racism is an actual thing and it, and, it, and it plays out whether we know it or not. It, it just, whether, you, whether you are experiencing discrimination or you have been free of discrimination, you are experiencing the racism that's in the United States and in our institutions. We just at least got to call it out. It's not, not going anywhere until we call out that it's an actual thing. So there. Absolutely right. That's my two cents. So, John, what does it mean to be your authentic self?
1: Well, it's there's a lot of conversation around authenticity, especially when it comes to how you show up in corporate spaces. And it's um, I think it's a more nuanced conversation than just than than most would be led to believe. So, for instance, how you show up in front of your family uh, at home or your friends who you've known for years versus you know, a, a, a networking acquaintance you met at a conference. We have different facets of who we are, and those facets are relevant in certain spaces more so than others. So when that wave of bring your whole self to work and you know, your authentic self and so forth in that context was, was being promoted, I first and foremost had the question, well, how do you define authenticity? Who's who's defining authenticity and what is the cultural or normative standard of authentic in that context? And so now we start to peel back the layer and you start to realize, well, I might not want to bring all of myself to work. (laughs) Right. It might not be necessary. And some people, you don't want to see all of themselves at work either. Right. So we have to be able to modulate. And it's a very uh, fine line of, you know, putting on airs or, uh, you know, wearing a facade versus, you know, being very clear in who you are, uh, unwavering in your principles and values, flexible and amenable to other people's views and beliefs who may be different. Uh, So I think it's a long winded way of saying your authenticity is less about how you project yourself versus how you interact, engage with others in a in, in full authenticity to be able to engage meaningfully, to exchange ideas uh, meaningfully, to be able to hear, understand and be understood meaningfully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that uh, and with the modulation, because I think there's a certain naivete that people hear when they say I'm bringing my authentic self. I'm just going to be me. Is I, I always when I. When I when people have asked me that question, I'm going to piggyback or underscore what you said about principles and values. I'm Mark Dawson. There are lines that I'm not going to cross. There are things that are meaningful to me. And I have a constitution of how I show up at work or show up anywhere for that matter. But if I am a lawyer by training and barred lawyer in the state of Georgia and or just I'm a barred lawyer. If I'm a person who's practicing law at a Wall Street bank, my dress language is going to be different. I'm Mark Dawson. My code is going to be the same. If I am a lawyer for Rockefeller, (laughs) my dress, my language, my code of showing up is going to be there. Now, I will say this. The standard of what I'm going to give to a Wall Street bank and to Rockefeller is going to be the same in terms of my integrity and how I want to, you know, help my clients succeed or whatever they're asking me to do but th- it's that that whole thing of I think people have to to be wise in that so I really appreciate your answer
1: well even even to add on to that and I think it's a it's a very key point in that how you your attire your uh your wardrobe is it has to be appropriate for the context in which you are showing up, right? What you wear to the club isn't the same thing you're going to wear to church, right? right. <laughs> and, and so if the uniform, right? And, and I suggest you you always have to wear the uniform of the work you're, at, you're, you're here to perform. And that's, that's the reality. That's right. You don't get to dictate the uniform based on how you feel, you sh- how you think or that's feel. Right. You, you got to show up and, and, and be prepared to do the work that you are hired to do and that includes how you dress.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> now, it, it just does. Go ahead.
1: Now now when it when it comes to encouraging whether ex- explicitly or implicitly uh that you need to alter your physical appearance, right? Things that uh that you know, that you can't change like the texture of your hair uh, the color of your skin or religious uh a- a- attire in some sort in some sense, that's a different story, right? right? Because now you're asking people to conform based on aesthetic and cultural identity, which is that's where your values and your principles should stand for. You.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's wild. And I think, you know, when I'm I, talking to white professionals or people who work in the DEI space, I, I just have to step back for a minute. And do you understand that for Black people and Black women more specifically, The ability to wear my hair the way it grows out of my head took a federal law, the the Crown Act, in order for me to be able to do it. And and it it, it, is so. It says a lot. It says a lot. And we are where we are, but we have to have honest conversations about all of the above if we're going to move forward on any of this. So I appreciate that. You seem to be someone and you talked about it in your book, uh, you, you know, when conversations around diversity and the ERG that you all formed, you, you seem to have your voice and sea legs early <laughs> in the process. Is that something you grew into in corporate spaces or did you come to the space with that? Uh,
1: in terms of like finding community and, and being a voice Within corporate spaces or? Yes and
0: yes. Yes, both in terms of finding voice for community and around issues of diversity and being Black in the space, but also in how you do your work. I mean, you're you're a marketing person by profession, by trade, right, first. So
1: all of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to what we spoke about earlier about, you know, that grounding Uh, And that HBCU background and being very comfortable and confident in who I am as a black man in America, but also in what I know, uh, but also being very clear on what I don't know. So I seek out community and connection as a means of growth and expansion by default, applying that to the work that I do, which, you know, in the DEI context is, I believe, human or humanity based work to be able to connect with people not only within my community, but also to encourage those outside of my community to cross bridges that have already been built. That requires, I think, again, a very clear understanding not only of who I am, but also who they are in the context of history. And so when I'm able to educate rather than implicate, I think that that encourages people to cross bridges that have already been built rather than trying to build new bridges. Cause I'm like, there's already enough bridges. Y'all just need to come to a different side every now and then. Right. And then also, I think the 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 ability to say what I say in a way that uh, is unwavering is is based on evidence. It's based on historical record. It's based on knowledge that has unfortunately not been disseminated equally or equitably throughout the education system. And so I don't say anything coming from a, you know, a, a, what's the word um, uh, a militant background, right? I'm I'm suggesting that if if you did not concentrate on history as a means of education, then there's a deficiency and a gap, and we have to first bridge that gap so we can have a, a an equal footing in the conversation and understanding and a commonality and language and and at least historical perspective to now be able to have discussions about what is happening and what do we want to do about it. But we can't do that until you understand why it's happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, and I, and again, you know, back to anyone who picks up the book, you will find that John is not spitballing. I mean, it's it's, it's evidence based, and, and it's it's a lot of truth in there. So, and 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 research and and other things. So, we appreciate that. Listen, we appreciate all of the time that you've given us, and we are ready to round this thing out. We ask everyone in the parlay in all
1: blue. What does it mean to live well? You know, that question has been uh, rolling around in my head for for quite some time. And I'll give you an answer that may seem like a non-answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring us there. To live well is subjective, right? Because depending on where you're starting from, a little could go a long way. But if you have resources, if you have the means, if you have love, if you have security, if you have clarity and understanding of yourself and your history, and, and you have all of these means of support, then to live well could look very different. And so what I suggest is that we have to be very um, resolute in, in the foundational elements. Health is living well. Being conscious of what you take in, not only physically, but also mentally, emotionally, and spiritually is living well. Keeping a door open for those who need access is living well. Being able to give knowledge or information to those who are seeking it and recognizing and being able to discern discern those who are actually seeking it versus those who are trying to use information for their own purposes or nefarious purposes, I should say, yeah, is living well. So there's a lot of definitions for me. All of those things in in addition to, again, being able to provide be uh, an excellent husband, father friend and brother to those uh son as well uh to those in my um in my immediate circle and the, to those abroad that's a that's a great answer you said it was a non
0: non-answer but that's a that's a great answer even for an alpha Hey, you know I had to throw that in I mean I hey, that, you man. know I, hey but you know I hey listen I, I got it so listen I had to I, I've waited all of this time you know <laughs> but there oh, we go. No.
1: Look, we, we love all our children, man, and we are we do. I, we
0: I, yeah. I, oh, okay. I feel you now. I get you right, Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> all right, all right. So, so let me ask you this: You've got a foot in uh, a foundational foot in the Bay Area and yes. in Philly. Yeah, I want yes. you to. I want you to put on the ultimate musical concert. I need cool. you to pick an opening act. A bridge or a middle act and the headliner. And, and you got you could go from the from the bay and Philly, but you but you can't you can only give me three. But they have to be from
1: the bay and from Philly.
0: Yeah, but you you can you you can you don't have to choose all bay, you don't have to choose all Philly, you can mix and match.
1: All right, all right, all right.
0: Dead oh, okay. or alive.
1: That's, oh that's heavy that's heavy all right well okay so if I if I if I open oh <laughs> this is tough I'm gonna open with the roots okay first of all, because they're expansive catalog and and musicality and just brilliance in all things they do to get the crowd going okay I'm gonna bring. Tupac in, Ah, okay, okay. Many do not, or those should know uh, his Bay Area foundations. Uh, Yes, um, Digital Underground, Richie Rich, and all all of the big names from from the Bay. Um, And then to close, now I went hip hop uh, intentionally there, but to close. See, this is going to throw people for a loop. I, I might, I'm back and forth between Patty uh-huh. or somebody sound of Philadelphia. Like it's, man, this is a tough question.
0: It, it is really it? is. But that's how we do. Dirty question, man. Oh. Got the roots. And, and, and listen, and you, and, and you're right. So they've got all of the styles of music. You've got Black Thought there with his own catalog, and then he could bring in G-Rap, Big Daddy Kane, and then you know mm-hmm. pop I, I got you. you. You got the roots and then pop. Who's gonna headline it? I'll bring in Patty. You're gonna bring in Patty. Okay.
1: All right. And I think that generations that covers that covers genres and it covers history. So yeah, yeah.
0: I, okay. So so listen there's nothing to mad at this to be mad about with this Tony, Tony, Tony they want to holla at you Raphael Sadiq wants to holla at you Sly and the Family Stone wants to holla at you fair.
1: yeah, they Berkeley Jilly fair.
0: from really. <sighs> yeah, he know. wants to
1: holla at you I know. you know and, and lot- Too Short, Too Short It's like man, you gonna pick Tupac over yeah. me he was initially going to be but then I said, hmm I also have to think about <laughs> impact. Yes, yes, no doubt. No doubt. No it, doubt. It, no it, doubt. Very much hey. a purist of hip hop, and I'm seeing the effect. That's a whole nother conversation, but
0: that's a whole nother conversation. Well, listen, yeah, nobody can be mad at that. And I will tell you that I am not mad at the time that you have spent with us and with me. It's been beneficial. Uh, Again, I urge everyone to go and pick up the book, especially around Christmas time for people in corporate America. when I say people, people who are coming from Southeast Asia, white professionals, black professionals, new college grads coming in, whatever, everybody can uh, benefit from it. Um, So we appreciate you and wish you all the best. And thank you for joining us.
1: I appreciate you having me, Mark. Phenomenal conversation and great
0: work. All right. Thank you. Everybody else, uh, stay tuned for the announcements. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.